0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. I paused this morning from our study in Genesis to address the situation that's obvious that we find ourselves in, and I I intended to do this next week, actually, Uh, but being that this thing has ballooned and it's kind of come on us a little quicker, I think, maybe than many of us would have thought, yesterday sitting in my study about 7.30 in the morning with about 80% of... um, my sermon complete, It just prayerfully done on me. We've got to do it this morning. Um, so I pause from our study in Genesis 50 that we might uh, take a look at um, the situation that we find ourselves in from Scripture. I mean, the, the just as we look at the changes that have taken place over this week with school closings and... Work closings and economic, uh, the economic situation. We find it. We're kind of appraised of the massiveness of this thing, and I, I hear many people speaking about how this is, seems really weird and seems really strange. And uh, there's a lot of anxiety right now. A lot of people are are scared. I was at a a door. Actually, this is for almost two weeks ago, and already almost two weeks ago, I knocked on a door and. Uh, the woman inside was scared to death to come to her door uh, she expressed such that she's just scared to death of this this coronavirus so it's affecting people in many ways um, that's hard for us to even think of the full effect of and uh, many parents right now are, are wondering with the school closings what are they going to do How are they going to Watch their children and be at work at the same time. Uh, we've we've heard from a couple. Uh, they're they're just they're just really worried. Uh, it's a no brainer. You want to be with your kids for sure, but you're also uh, mindful that there's a rent there's a rent check that's necessary. There's there's food and and then as you go to the you go to the get you go to the grocery stores and it's really strange there, isn't it? Uh, all of this is. Uh, really kind of culminating and working together to create a really eerie situation. And the questions that are being asked, I mean, how, how long is this going to last? That's a question that lingers in our minds, of course. And why, I mean, at the end of the day, what will the, you know, what will the, how, how many people will be harmed by this? Um, and we don't like to think about it, but how many people are eventually going to die from this? And that's on our minds. And what toll will it take on life as we know it, and what will its lasting effects be? Um, I I could go down the line uh, with many more questions that are similar in nature. And I I don't want to diminish in any way any of those questions, but I do want to suggest that there's a question that actually is more important than all of those questions without diminishing those questions. And that question is, how would the Lord have us to think through all of this? How would the Lord have us to think through all of this? Or I might put it another way, what direction does God give us on this? What directive has God given us as we we work our way through this? And the good news is God has dealt with this uh, quite exhaustively, and uh, that's what brings us to Psalm 91 this morning. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety and expound it on it in its entirety this morning. Um, in Psalm 91, beginning with verse 1, we find these words. They are the words of the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we do praise you, Father, for the word of this great psalm. We thank you, O Lord, that you've been pleased to give us this word, a word of consolation, a word of counsel, a word of wisdom. O Lord, we recognize this as a wisdom psalm in so many ways. And Father, we desire this morning to drink very deeply from this word, that we might have this wisdom that we might have this consolation, that we might face this situation in a way that is uh, pleasing to you, that reflects your glory, reflects reflects your truth. Well, Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to teach us and guide us this morning. Speak to each one of us, oh, Father, from your word. And Father, we lift up those who will be listening to this uh, by way of recording, we we, we lift them up to you as well, Father, that your Holy Spirit, that he would work uh, very mightily in their hearts even as he works in ours. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I want to approach the psalm this morning really under four headings, and I, I normally try to conceal much of my outline in my sermons. It, an outline is, is good. It's I want you to always have pegs to, to put things on, but uh, when you build a building, you, you have an infrastructure in the building, and most of the time you do what you can to conceal that infrastructure. Uh, but nevertheless, this morning I, I, want to, I want you just to listen to the general outline of this psalm because I think that if all you had was the outline, you would find a lot of comfort from the outline. As we think about the question, where do we turn in this time? The first point of our outline is that the psalmist himself shows us where to turn. That's the first thing that he does, is the psalmist shows us where to turn. But interestingly enough, he doesn't just show us where to turn. The second point is he shows us how to turn. He shows us how to turn. And he doesn't stop there, actually. As uh, he continues in verse 3 and onward, he begins to show us what will happen for those who turn. So did you get that? Let's stop right there for a minute. He's showing us where to turn. He's showing us how to turn. He's showing us what we could expect to happen as we turn. Or what one could expect to happen for those who turn. And then with words that are very difficult to even describe, the person changes at the end of the psalm, and we have the Lord Himself promising from heaven what He promises to do for those who turn. So That's the outline we'll take up. Let's start with the first. Notice that the psalmist shows us where to turn. In, verse, in, in, a, merely, in a stretch of merely two verses, we have no less than four names of God. I want to point that out to you. At the end of the first line, we have the Most High. The end of the second line of verse 1, we have Almighty. And then in the middle of the first line of the second verse, we have Lord. And in the last, we have God. Now, there's four names right there in a very close proximity to one another. And why, why is that? Well, the names of the Lord... They convey, God reveals himself to us, and many of the ways he reveals himself to us is he reveals himself to us by the names that he ascribes himself as. And there's, we, we, we get a lot of information to, uh, uh, for our, our what we might call our doctrine of God out of just these names. Just a study of the names of God is a, an enormously edifying study and the first name that we come to is translated in most of our translations with two words, most high. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elyon. Elyon. And of course, the word Elyon, I mean, it's it speaks of, of the most high. Uh, it means the most high. Uh, J.I. Packer is very helpful along these lines. And, and of course, in this quote comes from comes from a meditation that would not just concern the, the name Elion, but it's also concerning the name Elohim, which we'll meet uh, in the last, uh, the last of the names. But J.I. Packer, nevertheless, he offers these words, and I think they're very helpful. Uh, he says that Elion or Elohim, this family of words, they speak of a transcendent being. A transcendent being superhumanly strong. Well, if I might pause from our quote right there, what Packer is saying is this speaks to a God who is in possession of incomprehensible strength. His strength is, is absolutely incomprehensible to us. Um, when theologians of this magnitude use words like superhuman, um, they're not ascribing a comic figure to God. It's just this fact is the English language just does not bear the freight of these attributes. And you just don't have words. Uh, The strength of our Lord is incomprehensible. Continuing with Packer's quote, he goes on, not only a transcendent being, superhumanly strong, and with inexhaustible life in himself. Inexhaustible life. In himself, meditating on this yesterday, is probably where in my pastoral prayer where it was coming from. Lord, you don't get sick. You don't age. He doesn't. There's no risk of the Lord getting into some kind of an accident would would render him unable to do his job for a while. He, 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 he doesn't succumb to any of those things. Packer continues everything. He says that the Lord is, is in possession of an inexhaustible life in himself, and he is one on whom everything that is not himself depends. And that last sentence is a little bit awkward. I don't know why great theologians write so awkwardly, but they do. Um, the gift of prose is a whole other skill set, of which many of these guys do not have. It's like you read this stuff and you're like, really, you want me to understand this? Was that your goal? Uh, What he's saying here is that everything depends on God. Everything outside of God, everything apart from God, depends on God. Um, It depends on him. As we think about our lives, as we think about the lives of our loved ones, you know, as I think about my father's life, as I think about my mom, as we think about uh, those who are in our life, who, who, you know, their health condition renders this quite dangerous. Let us remember and be comforted by the fact that our, our life and breath is in God. As we think about Becky here carrying, there's two lives right there, dependent on God for every breath that we take. And that that same thing is just as true this week as it was last week when we weren't quite as worried about this. We were concerned about it, but not like we are this week. That hasn't changed. And I might even add another thought that might be uncomfortable to us, but it is, one, still the same, as that the life of this virus actually depends on God too. Of course, that's stepping into a subject I'm not going to cover this morning, but maybe it's a subject I need to cover in a future sermon. The second uh, name is uh, Sadai Almighty, or some of you will be more familiar with El Shaddai. Um, Sadai, what what does Sadai mean? We could cover it with one word. Uh, We could call him blesser. Uh, Robert Raymond is another systematic theologian that I respect greatly. He wrote this that Sadai is uh, able to subdue nature to his covenant purposes. The revelation of Sedai is as the as the Lord reveals himself as Shaddai. we usually translate it, Almighty. And when you, when you go through the Scriptures and you find the phrase Almighty, uh, it's usually translating the, the name Shaddai. And it's been a while, but we came across that in the life of Abraham and Sarah. you recall that they waited a long time for a child, didn't they? And it's, at some point, Abraham is like, Man, when's this child going to come? And the Lord comforts him by revealing himself as El Shaddai and proves to be El Shaddai when he enables Sarah at 90 to conceive and safely bear a child who is in complete health. Now, that's subduing nature to accomplish his covenant purposes, isn't it? How comforting is that? Not only does he enable her to conceive, he enables her to safely give birth to a healthy child and enables her to raise the child at 90 years old. I'm in my 50s and I'm not sure at this point, although I don't know. I mean, if the Lord would bless us, I... The prospects of raising a child now, you know, I mean, Tammy and I, we don't get much more than five hours of sleep a night anyways. We really don't. The average, I think, is five, five and a half. Twelve-hour days are an average day. Um, so I don't know. But the prospects of having the energy and having the same kind of thing that you have when you're in your 20s or your 30s, um, I think you know what I mean. Imagine doing it at 90. Imagine doing this at 90. El Sedai. El And The next one we're more familiar with because I've made a lot of noise about it in verse 2. The psalmist says, I will say to the Lord. He's pointing us to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And of course, that is the English translator's way of telling us that they're translating the name Yahweh. Who is is Yahweh? As Almighty God. He reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. Remember, he gives Moses the dreadful assignment of going back to Pharaoh, going back to Israel, saying to Israel, Listen, you you guys need to get together here. We're all out of here. And then he has to go to Pharaoh and say, Listen, I want you to let your entire Hebrew slave population go free. What a dreadful assignment. And what does Moses say to God in response to that? He says, Oh, Lord. If somebody's going to ask me who's sending me here. What do I say to them? And the Lord's response just sets you down on your seat, puts you on your on the floor, face down. The Lord says, "I am sent you." You tell him, "I am sent you." Oh, yeah. I am. He is the self-existent one. He's the one who doesn't depend. You see, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at that time. He depended on the Lord for each breath just as much as his peasant servants did. But Yahweh is the giver of breath. And you tell him the giver of breath sent you. And I think it's profitable for us to go to Exodus. Put your your bulletin in Psalm Psalm 91 and look with me to to Exodus 34 because the Lord Lord expounds Himself on this, by the way, in Exodus 34. And the context of this is Israel has just slipped up and apostatized very, very badly with the formation of the golden calf. And... Uh, you know, Moses, he springs to action and intercedes for his people, and he's pleading with God to, 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 that his presence will continue to go with him as they're making their way to the promised land. And at one point in all this, Moses says to the Lord, Show me your glory. And the Lord, the Lord agrees to this, and the Lord agrees to put Moses in a cleft of a rock. And the Lord so tenderly and lovingly protects Moses as he passes by him. He enables Moses just to see what is safe for Moses to see. But as he passes by him, we have the record of this. In verse 5, Moses is brought back up onto Mount Sinai. And in verse 5, the Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You see all capital letters. The name of Yahweh. Yahweh is proclaiming his very own name in this passage. And we're told in verse 6, Now, this could keep us busy for weeks with sermon material. But real quickly, let us look here. What is God saying? He's saying that it is his nature to be merciful. It's in his nature to be gracious. It's in his nature to be a God of steadfast love. In fact, he abounds in steadfast love. And not just steadfast love, but steadfast love and faithfulness did you notice the emphasis there because steadfast love something that is steadfast is secured very very firmly but he adds faithfulness to this which is sustained very uh, uh very soundly it cannot be broken it cannot be pulled away steadfast love that is god's nature god's nature is to be a god of steadfast love merciful gracious kind that's how he's revealing himself to us. And he is a forgiven God. See, his love dictates this. His love dictates that he should be loving, merciful, kind, gracious, slow to anger, patient, kind, forgiving. Not just forgiving sin, but you notice the text says forgiving, transgression, iniquity, and sin. I can't think of too much that doesn't cover. That's the point. It covers it all. It covers it all. But then it goes on to say, it's not lopsided in any way, but it goes on to say that he will not clear the guilty. And it goes on to speak about his justice. We see, his, and this is a point I've been trying to make on Wednesday nights, and it's a point that I'm trying to make in these little pamphlets that we're writing rough drafts of, so we have these little pamphlets that pass around. And one of the things that we want to get clear to our, uh, to our friends who do not know Yahweh is that His justice is so intertwined with his love that it can't be separated. That there's a spiritual law in this universe that's just the way that it is. For God to be perfectly loving, he has to be perfectly just. That cannot be separated or torn or rent asunder. It's a spiritual law. For God to be perfectly just, he cannot allow one single infraction of his law to go unpunished. So there we see the nature of him and, and and the beauty of him, and he would procure salvation that would keep his justice intact. Actually, shows his his brilliance. Now, I gotta watch myself because we could exhaust our time so quickly uh, with that alone. Back to Psalm, back to Psalm ninety-one. We we have one more one more name, and of course the name is Elohim. It's translated God, and much of what was said on Elion actually uh, could be grouped there. Uh, I think I would only add uh, uh, that he he is the mighty one, the majestic one, uh, the one true God, creator of the universe, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and etc. Now, you see, the psalmist, he is showing us where to turn. And he could have said, just turn to the Lord. And in many passages, that's what the psalmist does. But not on this one. No, in this one, he he is giving us just like... Boom, 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 four powerful names in which God reveals himself, which is a great medicine for consolation, for anxiety. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But before we do, I want to point out to you that the Lord, the second point, is that the psalmist is showing us how to turn. A lot of times people need instruction on how to turn. I'm told I need to turn, but how do I turn? Well, it's so brilliantly done with this poetry that just gives us this picture that that can be that can be painted into our minds. It's in verse one, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. What is it? How does how do we turn? We turn by dwelling, by dwelling. Yesterday, I, all day, I'm racking my brain. How? how what, what kind of illustration do I give for this? And then you know, I started to think about these bunny rabbits that are in my yard. And I thought that might get a chuckle out of you. He's thinking about how to illustrate this, and he's thinking about bunny rabbits. What do you got in your coffee, Rick? You're thinking about bunny rabbits. There's a story behind these bunny rabbits, by the way. When I was mowing my lawn last spring, I I almost hit them. There was all these baby bunny rabbits that were laying in the grass in my yard, and I just happened to notice them. And I stopped, and, and they were just sitting there shaking. They heard the sound of the mower, and they were terrified, but they were so small. And of course, their mothers, there was none around. And I thought, okay, I can't go near them because I know better. The parent will not return to them if you go near them. So I was doing what I could to try to coax them out of the yard. And uh, long story short, I managed to do it. And wouldn't you know it, a few weeks later, I saw all these little bunny rabbits playing in the yard. There they are playing, jumping around and. Uh, It was so sweet, you know. I'm like, oh, they made it; they survived, and um, watched them all summer grow. And they got so used. I think maybe it was because of that, maybe that initial incident. They got so used to me that I could get from me to Alex away from them, and for they would they would run. They would stare right at me, and they didn't seem to be all that afraid of me until I come out the door with my Jack Russell Terrier. They didn't feel the same way about him. And for good reason. I never go out the door with him unless he's on a leash because he has a lightning bolt. He's so fast. And those dogs were bred to kill rats in England. That's what they were bred to do. And they are good at it. And I don't want him killing these these animals. I, I like to watch them. One thing I've observed about these bunny rabbits is this. Whenever they're spooked, whether it be a car coming up the driveway or whether it be me and Baxter coming out the door, it's the first thing they do: is they they pause. But as soon as they see danger coming, they run, and they always run to the same place. There's a couple little holes in the thicket in the neighbor's yard, and they run. They all run to the same place. What are they running to? They're running to their dwelling. That's where they dwell in shelter. And that's the imagery here. But, you know, when, when there's an emergency, you know, when you hear that there's bad weather coming, where do you want to be? You want to be home. And where do you want your family members to be? Where do you want your kids to be? You want them to be home. You want them to be under your roof. You want them to be right there where you can see them, where you can hug them, where you can hold them. That's what we want, isn't it? Because that's where we dwell, we chose that dwelling for a reason. That is home. And the imagery here is making use of that to say that okay, he who dwells in the shelter of the high, how are we to turn to the Lord? We are to turn to the Lord the way those rabbits run to their holes at the first sight of danger. What is the first thing that comes to our mind? Is it what government should do? If it is, you're not in Psalm ninety-one you're apart from psalm 91 you're in psalm 91 but you're not in psalm 91 the psalm 91 the way you want to be in psalm 91 you see it's this abiding in the lord it's this dwelling in the lord it's taking up habitation in the lord it's all a way a poetic way of describing faith in the lord the operative word is trust And the the, the psalmist doesn't just call us to the Lord. The psalmist doesn't just show us how to come to the Lord. He gives personal testimony that he is in the Lord. He says in verse two, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Where is our trust? This can't be faked. I I think in the next 10 or 20 years or maybe even sooner, there's going to be a lot of changes for the church in the United States. I think persecution is just right around the corner. And I think it's going to be a sieve. I think it's going to be a screen. I, re- I really do. I don't know that, but I think that. And you know what I mean by a screen? My grandfather was a bricklayer, blocklayer. And sometimes there was sand left over for jobs from jobs, and we would pile the sand up next to his garage. But any time we wanted to use that sand, you couldn't use that sand until you screened that sand. Because you couldn't have these little rocks in the mortar or you couldn't lower, you couldn't, I mean, you just you just ruined the batch of mortar. And I remember me and Tommy, we, we, would, we would be given the task, if we were just little kids and we, were, we screened the sand. You took a shovel and Pap had made a screen, he had two befores around it with a screen on top of it and you had to do it when it was dry, if it was wet, it didn't work so well. And and we would just do what was dry and you'd shook the screen and the the, the sand would fall down through the screen and the rocks would be left on top. And we didn't throw the rocks away because Pap would use the rocks for when he was pouring a floor or something. So we'd end up with a pile of rocks eventually. and We'd have a pile of sand. But the point is it's a screen. It's a screen. Faith is a screen. The gospel is a screen. It sifts. It separates uh, what Jesus calls sheep from the goats. If our profession of faith is lacking in any way from what we see right here, then it's just an empty profession. And when danger comes, we're not gonna to run to we're not gonna to run to the Lord. We're gonna run. Where, in times of danger, we're gonna to run to where we think we are most secure. And only those in possession of true saving faith will run to the Lord in that hour. So you see, He is calling us how to turn. I want to add one ever caveat to you because Charles Spurgeon, when he was expounding on this passage, and I'll get to more of that here in just a few minutes, he made a comment that's quite interesting in regards to the church in general. And it's been been the same thing through all these generations because as I read it, I thought, boy, nothing has changed. But he speaks about the church at large and how there are many Christians who keep God at a distance. We wouldn't want to go as far as to say they're not true believers, But because of of laxity and the means of grace, and that's one of the reasons why I was preaching on the means of grace, why I was preaching on making use of the means of grace a few weeks ago, is because, you know, if we're not if we're not exercising the means of grace, you know, we're not coming to church regularly, or we're not in our Bibles reading, we're not praying, we're not taking a hold of God, and we're not following hard after him, then a distance is going to get between us. And and what will happen, as a distance gets between us, your anxiety level is going to be proportional to that that distance. What's in view here is following hard after God, putting your faith and your trust in Him and following hard after Him. That's what's in view. Um, So much more could be said about that. The psalmist has showed us where to turn. He showed us how to turn. And now he's showing us what we can expect will happen for those who turn. If you look at verses 3 and following we're told that he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. That is, he's going to deliver you from Satan's evil schemes, whatever they be, there's the machinations of men, the schemes of men or the schemes of the devil. They're all one and the same. In verse three, he will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. In verse four, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. A buckler is just a small shield that That was often fastened to the forearms. If you if you just Google that and look at pictures of Roman soldiers, you'll see those small shields that were used. That's a buckler. In verse five, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. The operative word there is "you will not fear." Anxiety will be wiped away. I think it's interesting. Notice the verse 6 the pestilence that stalks in the dark. We can't see the coronavirus, we can't see it. it stalks in darkness. But what can, the one who, what can the one who has turned to the Lord and is dwelling with the Lord, what can they expect in terms of their anxiety level in regards to what they can't see? It's going to be reduced. It's going to be reduced. It's going to be reduced greatly. This is what we can expect. It goes on to say a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the Most High, who is my refuge. Don't it sound like Proverbs in many ways as we read through this? If it does to you, there's a good reason for that. It's because this is a wisdom song. It's a wisdom song. Notice verse 10. It goes as far to say to make the bold statement that no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Now, what is that saying? Is that saying that if we're true believers, we're immune from the coronavirus? I brought a book with me, It's um, maybe some of you are familiar with this book, it's, um, it really is one of the greatest works, uh, one of the greatest things that Charles had in Spurgeon, accomplished in his lifetime, now, this is volume two of what is called The Treasury of David, it's a commentary on the 150 Psalms that we have in the Psalter, I understand it's, I don't know who counted them, uh, probably some computer software, but there's more than two million words in these three volumes. Um, This man worked day and night, and he is a great inspiration to me. He was commenting on these verses, and he writes these words. He says, before expounding these verses, I cannot refrain from recording a personal incident illustrating their power to soothe the heart when they are applied by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to tell a story. The year is 1854, and he had only been in London about a year at this point in time when an Asiatic cholera come into the district in which he was ministered. And it began to take lives, one after another after another. And you can imagine, can you imagine enduring that in 1854 in London? Or for that matter, can you imagine enduring the uh, the plague in 1664 or 1665 in London? These old countries have been through all this before. Italy has been through this, the, the Black Death. 1300s, 1400s. They've been through this. This is not their first rodeo over there. Would you imagine dealing with this before you even understood viruses? Now, Spurgeon goes on to say that he was being called upon. He's being called upon to come to the bedside of all of these dying parishioners, all these dying people, and one after another. He's being called and being called. He's doing funeral after funeral, being called, funeral after funeral, being called. And finally, at one point, he says, I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear and I was ready to sink under it. As God would have it, I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when my curiosity led me to read a paper which was wafered up in a shoemaker's window in the Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it, for it bore in a good, bold handwriting these words, quote, because thou hast made the Lord which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. That's a direct quote of what we just read in our text, verses 9 and 10, in the authorized version. Spurgeon goes on to speak about how those words minister to him. He goes, he says, quote, "...the effect upon my my heart was immediate." Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil. I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to place these verses in his window, I gratefully acknowledge, and in the remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. He goes on to say, Though faith claims no merit of its own, yet the Lord rewards it wherever he sees it. He who makes uh, God his refuge shall find him a refuge. He who dwells in God uh, shall find his dwelling protected. We must make the Lord our habitation by choosing him for our trust and rest. And then when we receive immunity from harm, no evil shall touch us personally. No stroke of judgment shall assail our household. The dwelling here intended by the original was only a tent, yet the frail covering will prove to be a sufficient shelter from harm of all sorts. It matters little whether our abode be a gypsy's hut or a monarch's palace. If the soul has made the most high its habitation, get into God and you, and you dwell in all good, and ill is banished far away. It is not because we are perfect or highly esteemed among men that we can hope for shelter in the day of evil, but because our refuge is the eternal God and our faith has learned to hide beneath his sheltering wing. What is Spurgeon saying? What is this psalm saying? Is it saying, as a true believer, we are immune from the coronavirus or Asiatic cholera or AIDS or all of these other things? Listen, Listen really carefully to what he says next. He says, it is impossible that any ill shall happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Did you hear that? It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Now listen carefully to what comes next. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Let me read that again. I know these long quotes. I rarely do them because they're hard to hold on to when you don't have the book in your hand. But listen to this. I'll read it again. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. Do we believe that? It's been a curious thing to me in the church for so many years. I'll tell you a story. Years ago, I was ministering to a man. He was a thinking man. I love this man. I still love this man. I don't know where he is. I've lost track of him. He moved to Texas, and I don't have any information on him. But I was reaching out to him with the gospel. Oh, this is is many years ago. And I was reaching out to him with the gospel. Finally, he agreed to come to a service that I was preaching at. And he came to the service, and I was so happy to see him show up. And uh, in the course of the service, there were prayer requests that were taken, and many of the prayer requests had to do with health concerns. And after the service, this man joined Tammy and I for lunch. And at one point in the lunch, he said, I have a question for you, Rick. You believe, you guys believe that when you die, you go to heaven, right? Right? And I I said, yeah. I said, actually, yeah. The promises of God are very clear on that, that as soon as we go through death, we enter into the Lord's arms, and there we are in paradise where we await for the consummation of all things, the resurrection body, new heavens, new earth, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, yeah. I guess that's what I thought. That's what you've been saying to me. He goes, but I have a question for you. Why were all those people back there scared of dying? (laughs) Now, what would you have said to him? That is a good question, isn't it? I'll tell you what I said to him, and it's the same answer I would give if one of you were saying it to me today. The first part of the answer is death is an enemy, and God has instilled life in us, and death is scary. Stepping into the unknown is scary, and that's why the most faithful believer will fear death. It's scary. We need to permit people to the 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 slack to fear death. Um, that that is. That is the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer and I, that I shared with him is not everybody really believes this stuff. It's just flat out. You've got to understand when you walk into a church, just because every, everybody you see, is not everybody you're staring at actually believes this stuff. And that's what you're picking up on. Do we believe this? Do we actually believe that it is not death to die? That's an old hymn, by the way. But I bet it gets rarely sung. It is not death to die. Anybody ever heard that hymn? See that? I don't think we believe that. I'm going to go as far to say as I just don't think. I know there are exceptions, but I think a large part, we just don't believe that. And I say that because for all these years as I take prayer requests, and I don't, when I say this, I don't want to diminish. Every time I talk this way, I don't want to Listen, you will bring your prayer request. I'm never going to judge your prayer request. You bring your prayer request, and you bring your prayer request, and we want to pray for health concerns. But I got to tell you, a lot of times, I think that the average person thinks that cancer is worse than, worse than eternal judgment. I really believe that. I have yet to be convinced that that's different. Eternal judgment is far worse than cancer, by the way. Cancer is bad. Coronavirus, bad. Asiatic cholera, bad. AIDS, bad. Swine flu, bad. SARS, bad. Black death, bad. Bubonic plague, bad. Bad, 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 bad. bad. Eternal judgment, worse. That's what's in view here. You see, these sicknesses, as bad as they are, they're temporary for the believer. And what they are is the last bumps in the road as we enter through the door into glory. For some of us, it's going to be a smooth road. We might just go to sleep and wake up in the Lord's arms. The highway may be very smooth. But for some of us, It may be the most bumpy, it may be the bumpiest road that we've ever traveled in our lifetimes. But I will say this, either way, this applies. If you are dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, you will receive a bundle of grace. Whether that road be smooth, you'll get a bundle of grace equivalent for that smooth road. If that road is bumpy, you will get a bundle of grace equivalent to those rocks and bones. And let's revisit this word shelter, shall we, in verse 1, before we go any further. The psalmist is writing before the cross, isn't he? We are after the cross. We are in what the New Testament calls the last days. This is the the dispensation of the covenant of grace. This is the old administration of the covenant of grace. We are now in the new administration of the covenant of grace. They look forward to the Savior. We look to the Savior who has come. And in terms of thinking about the shelter, where is the shelter? What is the shelter? It'd be better to ask who is the shelter? Who is the shelter? The shelter is Christ, isn't he? Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How would the original audience understood that? The Lamb of God, ah, Lamb of God, Passover. Lamb of God slain, blood put on doorpost, angel of destruction passes over house. The blood of the Lamb covers the house. The blood of the Lamb covers the faithful. The Lord Jesus is the shelter who is covering us. Where do we run in times of danger? We run to Christ. Is Christ our habitation? Now, as soon as I ask that question, I'm stepping into a large portion of the New Testament, which is repeatedly saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christo, in Christo, habitation. Are we dwelling and living in Christ as faith in Christ brought us into union, Brought us in union with the Lamb of God, He was our covering. That's the question. Continuing on, verse 12, 11 and twelve, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, on their hands that will bear you up, lest you, lest you, you strike your foot against a stone. Now, some of us will recognize these words. So I recognize those. Come out of those. Come out of uh, Matthew, didn't they? Yes, in Jesus' temptation. You remember the evil one put Jesus upon the pinnacle of the roof and he said, Jump. Let the angels grab you, everyone will see it, and you'll have a what's conveyed there is everyone's gonna see it and you'll have a big following. Go ahead and jump, put it to the test. And how does Jesus respond to that? He says, You shall not put the Lord to the test. And he offers us commentary on these verses, by the way. As we think about the coronavirus, there is a tendency where many people say it's just the flu. Everybody's worried about the flu. They shut all the ball games down for the flu. You see, this verse, this verse calls us to take this seriously. How does it call us to take this seriously? Well, let's not put the Lord to the test. Let's not take the liberty that God has given us. He's reduced our anxiety. He's reduced our fear of this. Let's not run around like nothing's going on. Because if you look at verse 5, there really are arrows flying around by day. There really is a danger that stalks in the darkness. Especially most of the people I hear saying things like, what are we worried about this for, are usually healthy, very healthy. But this is a deadly thing for those who are are not quite so healthy. So we want to take it seriously. We shouldn't panic. How would God want us to think about this? It's not panic. There's no reason to panic If if we're dwelling in Him. If we're not dwelling in Him, then what's the problem? Let's get in there. I mean, don't be like a bunny rabbit that walks up to my Jack Russell Terrier. Nice, nice doggie, nice doggie. Don't, that's, i tell you what, it's just as silly, isn't it? Get in him. Get in him. Verse 13 is about victory. You'll tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, the serpent, you'll trample underfoot. That's victory. God will trample Satan under his foot and all his evil machinations. Verses 14, 15, and 16. This is our last last, um, uh, move, and I don't need to prolong it because you'll notice there's a change in voice. It says, because he holds fast to me in love. Now, notice there's a qualification. There's a screen. This is speaking of those who are made their habitation in Christ. These are those who are in Christ, and this is only those who are in Christ. God here promises what he will do. And what will he do? He says, I will deliver him. Do you hear that? I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. In my study this morning, I was thinking, Lord, I wish that with my voice, I could shake this building with those words like the cherubim who claim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Oh, Lord, I wish I could shake this building. When I say these words, I will deliver him. Then I thought, I don't need to shake the building because the Holy Spirit can shake the heart. And I hope he's shaking your heart with these words. I will deliver him because he or she holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great psalm. There's still so many things that are not covered. This is just the beginning. But, oh, Father, our time and our ability to retain is spent. Oh, Father, I pray that you will cause this psalm to reverberate in our hearts and to reverberate in our hearts mightily. Oh, Father, open us to receive it. And, Lord, if there's anyone listening to this psalm who have yet to take up their Dwelling in you, O Father, draw them and lead them and guide them and pull them, O Father, that they may be recipients of all these great promises of deliverance that we find in this psalm. O Father, we see in this psalm that how are we to think about this? This virus is in your hands and it owes its life to you. You will accomplish what you set to accomplish. But O Father, I think it's quite curious that you've, that you're bringing everything to a halt. Uh, you're you're just bringing everything to a halt and giving us the opportunity to think about this, Father. I pray that you will use this, use this time, O oh Father, for the for your glory and for the welfare of those, O oh Father, who are still apart from you. O oh Father, we see from this psalm, there's no reason for the faithful to to panic, but yet we take this seriously. We owe this just. Um, second table of the law we owe this we owe this to love our neighbors ourselves and to not be agents to transfer this disease that father we would do each do our part and take whatever measures are necessary in order to express love to our fellow neighbors and loved ones. So oh Father, we see that we're to be between the lines of panic and and not acting like anything is happening. Oh Father, fill us, fill us with the truth. Fill us with hard truths. Fill us, O Father, with the very truth that to die actually is gain. O Father, help us with this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.